Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want to ask you to turn your attention to Mark chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 9 through 28 tonight. I'm going to cover them very quickly. I thought about earlier as we saw the waters of baptism stirred with four folks. It's not often that we have a Sunday that the baptistry is not stirred. If someone does not make a profession of faith in Christ or come for believer's baptism, and we get the privilege as a church of seeing those waters moved by the presence of people walking through them. And it may be that at times we forget the significance of it and the meaning of it, that it is a public declaration of Christ. It is an identification with Christ. In fact, in many countries... Your profession of faith is not taken seriously until you follow Christ in baptism. For the Muslims, when somebody professes faith in Christ, they take seriously that profession of faith when they walk through the waters of baptism. In fact, that's where they cut you off. And in many countries, to follow Christ in baptism can cost you your life. Tonight, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus Christ, among other things not because he was a sinner, but to set for us an example. John has broken onto the scene. He has upset the Pharisees and the religious establishment of the day. He's turned over every bagel cart that he could get a hold of. And he has moved into the scene to say that there is repentance that is required of men. John never minced words. If you read the brief accounts of the life of John the Baptist, you'll find out he got straight to the point. He never beat around the bush. He always cut to the heart of the matter. C.S. Lewis is an incredible scholar of another generation. He said he heard a preacher say one time, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will eventually suffer grave eschatological ramifications. He said he went to the preacher afterwards and said, excuse me, but did you mean to say if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you'll go to hell? He said, yes, that's what I meant to say. He said, then why didn't you say that? John said what he meant, and he meant what he said. There are three things that I want to see tonight. First of all is the picture of the dove in verses 9 through 11. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Now, there are about five facts regarding baptism that I want you to just see briefly tonight. First of all, baptism for Jesus was an act of obedience. He was not a sinner. But Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that he came to fulfill all righteousness. It was an act of obedience. Secondly, baptism was an act of identification. By being baptized, Jesus became identified with those who would follow him, who would be saved. Thirdly, it was an act of verification. An act of verification. It verified John's ministry. 
It was his stamp of approval on John's ministry as the forerunner of Messiah. So God used the time of baptism in the life of Christ for verification. Fourthly, the Father and the Son bore witness at the baptism of their approval of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something. When Jesus was baptized, he'd never healed anybody. He had never preached a sermon except to talk in the temple when he was 12 years old. He had never performed any great miracles, and yet the Spirit descended like a dove and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 30 years old, had never done anything as far as a public ministry. You know what that tells me? That tells me that when you walk with God, you can hammer nails to the glory of God. That what you do in your vocation and how you live in your home can cause God to come down and say, This is my child in whom I am well pleased. Not because he preached anything, not because he healed anybody, but because he did what he was supposed to do for the first 30 years of his life. It was an act of bearing witness. And then fifthly, it set the direction for Messiah's ministry. It set the direction for Messiah's ministry. He was a servant. The Spirit descended like a dove or in the form of a dove. In fact, that word descended, if you tried to put it in the 20th century, would be like a helicopter hovering over. The Spirit hovered over Christ and said, I approve you as my unique son. To the Jews, the dove was a sacrificial bird. And Jesus was empowered by the descending of the Spirit in the form of a dove He was empowered for sacrificial service. That's the dove. Secondly, we want to see the vulture. Verses 12 and 13. Look there if you would. And immediately, this was after the baptism, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Now before the Spirit, before Satan comes and deals in this area of temptation, there is the work of the Spirit in the temptation. Notice that it says, immediately the Spirit impelled him. That word impelled better translates cast him out, forced him out, threw him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit of God initiated this encounter. The encounter of Jesus and Satan in the wilderness was not optional. It was on God's eternal plan. What Jesus did was he took the battle to the enemy. At the very initial stages of his ministry, he went into the enemy's camp and he did battle with him. But later on he will say that you bind the strong man before you plunder his house. Jesus won the battle against Satan beginning at the point of temptation. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, you can just write it down and look it up a little later if you want to, says that the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Tradition has it that this temptation happened in the rough, rugged limestone rocks outside of Jericho. Some of you have been to Israel. You know how hot and dry we think of wilderness like woods and vines and all that kind of stuff. This is barren land. It seems like nothing can live out there. And for 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The work of the Spirit was to drive him out to confront Satan 
in enemy territory. The Jews believed that the demons dwelled in the wilderness. In fact, the Jews believed that there were seven million demons. And they believed that those that did not inhabit somebody were dwelling in the wilderness. So it's significant that God took his son into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy. Graham Scroggie says that no feature of Christ's life has been the subject of greater study than his temptation. Temptation is a cardinal element in the human experience. Now turn to the book of Hebrews, if you would, because I want you to see two or three verses in the book of Hebrews. You see, you remember Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they failed. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, and he was victorious. The Spirit led him out there. The Spirit impelled him, cast him into the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to look at some verse in chapter 2, in chapter 4, and in chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. <clears throat> For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. All that says is simply this. Jesus knows what you're going through when you're tempted. That's what it tells you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, a further expansion on this idea of the fact that Jesus had to. This was not an optional encounter. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus went into the wilderness. He was tempted in all areas, yet he didn't succumb to sin. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. As the vulture comes to prey on him, to try to destroy him, to offer him an option and another way of doing what God had set him aside to do. The Spirit impels him and sends him out. Satan the vulture comes in immediately after the baptism. Now this reminds me of a couple of things. It reminds me that life is often a series of blessings and buffetings. That usually in our mountaintop experiences is where Satan pulls the rug out from under us. It is in those moments that we feel like we have had a great spiritual experience that Satan comes and tries to blindside us and to knock us off guard. It's a something, statement I've made before. Ron Dunn was the first one I ever heard to make this statement. Good and evil run down parallel tracks and they normally arrive about the same time. Know this, that whatever great thing God is doing in your life, Satan is at the same moment planning for something to cause you to stumble. Don't get so cocky. Don't get so arrogant. Don't think that you are beyond it or that you have moved into a phase where Satan must leave you alone because the great manifestations of God's love often occur at the times of great temptations. We never get to rest on our laurels. 
We never get to coast in the Christian life. The vulture comes in and he does a work of temptation. Now the implication of the words in these verses is that it was not just these three temptations. That these three were the culmination of continuous temptation. That day after day, night after night, moment after moment, that Satan was bombarding Jesus with every conceivable temptation. The Word says he has been tempted in that which he has suffered, so he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was tempted in all ways. That little phrase, tempted by Satan, is a present tense participle. It simply means that he was continuously subjected to temptation. He was tempted by Satan. I remember sitting in a seminary class one time and having a systematic theology professor say that he believed that there was a possibility of an evil force somewhere out there in the universe. But Jesus was not tempted by an evil force somewhere out there in the universe. He was tempted by a person, by Satan. He was a personal tempter. He was a personal enemy. There is so much evidence in the Word of God that Satan is an adversary, an antagonist, and that he is a real person that you cannot deny it. Thirty-five times in the New Testament he's called Satan. This is a warfare between the Son of God and Satan who desired to be God. This is a warfare and a temptation to take shortcuts and to compromise and to take the easy way out. So remember this. Every temptation is a call to battle against Satan. Every temptation is a call to battle against Satan. Satan is trying to offer Jesus something that he cannot produce. By the way, could I give you some free advice? Learn to say no. It's easier than learning Greek. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had to deal with your children? And just, you know, well, say no. You don't have to learn the Greek language. God put it right there together. M-N-O-P. In fact, if you spell wrong, you can say nope. <laughs> learn to say no. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to resist temptation. You just have to learn to say no. Thomas Manton, a great Puritan, said, The more of the divine nature is in you, the more you will be able to stand against temptations. We are easily carried aside because we have more of man than God in us. G.B. Duncan said, Jesus was not tempted because he was bad, but because he was important. And if you get tempted, my friend, you're just in good company. By the way, if you find yourself in situations where you feel surrounded by temptation, also know this, you are at the same time surrounded by grace. There's none of this business I can't help myself. For with the temptation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, God has made a way of what? Escape. When you're surrounded by temptation, you are surrounded with an equal and more abundant source of grace to resist the temptation. Now, what about the lamb? The lamb is referred to in verses 14 through 28. 
there is a commencement of his ministry in these verses. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the commencement of his ministry. Now, what most theologians believe is that Mark covers one year in the life of Christ in these two verses. He makes no mention of the wedding feast at Cana. He makes no mention of other events that happened like Nicodemus. Early events in his life and ministry are not even referred to. It just says he's in Galilee, the northernmost part of Palestine, and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. One year out of the three-year ministry of Jesus, public ministry of Jesus, and Mark covers it in two verses. Mark was not a Baptist preacher. We know that. He got through too quick. He covered that year in those two verses, and he sets the tone. And if you'll just follow me through chapter 1, let me just show you how he set the tone. He sets the tone by saying, first of all, that Jesus ministered to all kinds of people. Jesus did not minister to the elite. He didn't just minister to the lower class or the middle class or the upper class. Jesus did not come to establish a kingdom for a certain few. He ministered to all kinds of people. Look at verse 21. He ministered to the people in the synagogue. He ministered to people in church in the synagogue. In verse 23, he ministered to a man with an unclean spirit. In verse 30, he ministered to Simon's mother-in-law. That lets you know how much God loves you. Verse 33, he ministered to a city gathering. Verse 40, he ministered to a leper. Not only did he minister to all kinds of people, but he ministered in all kinds of places. You see, ministry doesn't just happen in church. In fact, ministry really doesn't happen until we get outside of the church. Service and ministry and mission begins when we get in our cars and leave this place. He ministered in all types of places. In verse 22, he ministered in the synagogue. In verse 29, he ministered in a home. In verse 33, he ministered on a doorstep. In verse 40, he ministered at the roadside. This is the commencement of the ministry of Christ. He came to save whosoever will. He came for all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Therefore, the church must never, ever put cultural, racial, social, or economic boundaries where God doesn't draw them. God ministered to all people in all walks of life, and that is the call of the church too. Now there's the call of his, his disciples. And in verses 16 through 19, he calls his disciples. Look, and he says, He was going along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went to follow him. The call of his disciples. Four disciples are mentioned by Mark. Two sets of brothers, all fishermen. Now, why Mark chose these, we don't know, but they were fishermen. There were over 300 fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee that day. They must have had a tournament. 
But on a typical day in the Sea of Galilee, there were over 300 fishing boats. Fish was the staple diet of the day. It was like a hamburger. You ate fish every day like we eat hamburgers every day. Well, some of us eat hamburgers every day. Some of the rest of us eat other things. Peter and Andrew, James and John, common fishermen. You remember what Abraham Lincoln said? God must love common people because he made so many of them. God loves the common man. He called four common fishermen, and he said to them, Come after me. Follow me. This was an invitation with a command. It was a call to discipleship. Not a call just to tag along for a while. It was a life call on those four disciples. For them to come after Christ, he said, I will make you fishers of men. Now, it is interesting for me to see that Jesus didn't say, I'll make you fishers of your fellow fellow Jewish brethren. He said, I'm going to make you fishers of all men. And the term that he uses is an interesting term. He uses the common fishing term to explain the call. And the Greek word that he uses for being fishers of men is a word that means to catch a fish in such a way that when you bring him in, he's still alive. You see, I always thought you catch fish and the purpose is for them to be dead. You don't want them flopping around in the boat. Jesus said, I'm going to get you to be a fisher of men and when you catch them, we're going to keep them and we're going to bring them to shore and bring them home and they're going to be alive when we get them there. I like what Adrian Rogers said here. He said, when we fish, we fish and take them out of a... When we fish we for fish, we take them out of a beautiful life into death. But when we fish for men, we take them out of death into a beautiful life. You see, we catch men dead in sin, and we save them and bring them to life. That's why we are to be fishers of men. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them not only to himself, but he called them to a ministry. There was a ministry for them to perform. They left their nets. It was a definite act. When you leave your net, you're leaving your source of income. They left their security. They left everything that they could fall back on. They left their nets and followed him. John Mott says, A multitude of laymen are in serious danger. It is positively perilous for them to hear more sermons, attend more Bible classes, and read more religious and ethical works unless accompanying it all there be afforded day by day an adequate outlet for their new found truth. God has called us to a ministry. And each one of us as disciples of Christ are called to be fishers of men. Not just those of us with the gift of evangelism, but all of us are called to be fishers of men. And then thirdly, if you'll see, there's the challenge of the campaign. The challenge of the campaign. In verse 21... And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they began to debate among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they 
obey him. Jesus went to the challenge of the campaign and he began it in the synagogue, the place where the Bible was read and where prayers were offered and exposition was done. And the people immediately noticed a difference in his teaching. They noticed there was something unique about him. They were amazed at his teaching that he taught as one having authority. The word amazed can be translated astonished. The tense of it means it was a prolonged shock. We would say that they were blown away by the teachings of Jesus. They were blown away by his mastery. It shook them up. It rattled their cage that this one taught like none they had ever heard. I've been impressed with some Bible teachers in my time, and I've sat under some, and I've just been blown away by them, but I have never been blown away like I'm sure these people immersed in dead religion, never having heard words with life behind them, only going through meaningless tradition and ritual and rites and repetition. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he teaches as one with authority. I would be amazed too. But he says he taught as one with authority. That word authority means as one with inner assurance. He taught as one with an inner assurance. He spoke as God would speak. In fact, it means, the word means unquestioned authority. You see, the scribes and the teachers of the day spoke from authority. They would take the law, they would try to use the law as their authority. Jesus spoke of his own authority. The scribes would always quote another rabbi and would say, Rabbi so-and-so said this. They would never give their own opinions. It was a mark of the scribes and the teachers of the time of Christ that they never would say what they felt the Word said. They would always try to tell you what somebody else said that it said so that they would never be put on the spot. Jesus spoke with authority as if he needed no other authority from the very fact that he said it. That's the kind of authority he had when he spoke. And it astonished them, it amazed them that he had a a power behind him. Now, I don't know what he said that day because Mark doesn't record that sermon, but he sure records the invitation. A man with an unclean spirit is there, and there's the casting out of the demonic spirit beginning in verse 23. This man cried out. The Greek word means a deep shriek. He screamed out. He cried out. Isn't it amazing that a demon-possessed man could sit in the synagogue week after week after week and not be bothered, but when Jesus shows up at church, he cries out. This man, oppressed and possessed by a demon, cries out, and Jesus spoke a word, and the man started screaming, and he spoke and told him to be quiet. There was an unclean spirit in him. Now, you need to know that Mark uses unclean spirit and demon interchangeably in his gospel. Anytime he refers to an unclean spirit, he is referring to the demonic as well. He uses these words interchangeably and never distinguishes between them. And you must understand that the Word of God never questions the existence of demons. Never. There was never any question in the mind of the early church. There was never any question in the mind of Jesus. 
in the mind of Simon Peter, in the mind of Paul, or any of the apostles, that there was the existence of demons. This argument that has been pushed in the last 150 years that says that Jesus just accommodated himself to the times because people didn't understand the difference between psychological problems and so he just identified it as a demon, that's a lie. Jesus believed in demons. And if Jesus believed in the existence of demons, we ought to believe in the existence of demons. You and I need to understand that they exist. If they were not a reality, then why didn't Jesus tell us they weren't a reality? You see, he dealt with every other misconception. He expanded on every other truth. Then why didn't he say, if demons were not a reality, why didn't Jesus Christ say, you have heard it said that there were demons, but I say unto you, and then taught us what the truth was. But you see, Jesus understood the reality of demons because he was there when they fell out of heaven. Because they rebelled against God. One-third of the angels rebelled against God and they were cast into hell. And now they dwell and, and cover the earth and they kind of have a good time destroying lives. The Word never questions. He says, be muzzled, come out. Now look at how the crowd reacts. They were all amazed. And they debated among themselves. And they said, he is, has a new teaching with Authority. That little phrase, a new teaching with authority, means he has a new teaching, not that he's added something new, but it is new in quality and in depth as opposed to that which sounds old and worn out. Jesus' teaching sounded like it had been recorded on a CD or a DAT tape, not like an 8-track. It was new in quality. There was a distinctive difference in the sound of the old worn out words of the scribes and the Pharisees and these words from Jesus. There are ten references to demons in the Gospel of Mark. There was no doubt that they existed. Now having said that, I want to give four dangers or four cautions in discussing demons. Number one, the first danger, the first caution when we talk about demons is that we would not properly identify what is demonic. We would fail to properly identify what is demonic. And by that I mean simply this. There are people who can have a chemical imbalance and that's not demonic. There are people that can be under emotional stress there are people that can have physical conditions, and that's not demonic. The devil doesn't do everything. There's not a demon under every rock. We need to be careful that we don't properly identify the demonic. You need to try to identify what the real problem is. You see, it's easy just to kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, the devil made me do it, or it must be demons. And not take the time to evaluate if this is demonic or if it's not demonic. You see, the wrong premise leads to the wrong diagnosis. You better not establish a wrong premise or you'll come up with a wrong diagnosis. You don't need to give morphine for a headache. You just need to take an aspirin. And sometimes elements of the Christian community try to blame everything on demons. So that leads me to the second one. 
It's the danger of overestimating the demonic. The danger of overestimating the demonic. And that is a failure to understand the strength of fallen man. You see, my problem and your problem most often is not the weakness of our flesh, it is the strength of our flesh. We fail and we have a danger of overestimating the demonic. Grace does not run in the blood of man, but corruption does. We are a part of the fallen seed of Adam, and the corruption of our flesh runs in our blood. It is inherited. We are born totally depraved. We are born with a will set apart from God. You don't even have to teach a child to be rebellious. He's got it built within him. It comes with the package. It's standard equipment. If you don't believe that, just grab a kid anywhere in this church and take him home for a week. We can overestimate the demonic. Don't underestimate the strength of man's flesh. Man's flesh left uncontrolled can do the unimaginable. We see it every night on the news. We can spend so much time being consumed by it that we forget to keep our focus on Jesus. Don't overestimate the demonic. There are no chocolate milk demons. There are no ice cream demons. There are no demons. Demons don't mess with stuff like that. That's just our inability to discipline ourselves. Number three, don't underestimate the demonic. Men and women, we better give the devil his due. He is still the prince of the power of the air. He still is a powerful enemy. Although he is defeated, he is at this time allowed by God to be the ruler of this world. He is a roaring lion. Don't underestimate the devil and his demons or they'll knock you over like pins in a bowling alley. Don't underestimate what the devil can do and the foothold that he tries to get to play on our fears, to play on our anxieties, to work on our lives, to destroy our families. Don't underestimate him. And number four, there's a danger in misunderstanding the nature of spiritual warfare. There's a danger in misunderstanding the nature of spiritual warfare. And by that I simply mean this. Spiritual warfare is not a joking matter. It's not a joking matter to talk about the demonic. Because I'll assure you that every demon in hell and every demon on earth is serious about destroying anything God does. They'll try to get into churches. They'll try to get into families. A lot of times you deal with things of demonic oppression that happen in people's lives. It's not a joking matter. Don't underestimate the nature of spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. That's why Paul says we're to put on the armor of God. Don't you get up and go out any morning without putting on the armor of God because I promise you Satan is always looking for a chink in your armor. He's looking for a place where he can hit you with a fiery dart. You forget one piece of the armor and you're vulnerable. But I've got good news. 
1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. The same power that resided in Jesus Christ while He was on this earth to have authority over death and hell and the grave and the demonic, that same power is available to us because we have made our lives available to Christ. And when you and I walk in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and when we are submitted to God, we have no reason to fear the demonic. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That means that the Holy Spirit inside of one believer has more power than everything Satan can muster in this world. One believer. Greater is he that's in you right now and tomorrow and the next day and when the bottom falls out than he that is in the world. Jesus came to change lives and to set the captive free. John says the thief comes to steal steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.